0: this. could be a great intro. <laughs> Hi, I'm Akshay. Hi, this is Saurabh. And you are listening to the Founder Thesis Podcast. We meet some of the most celebrated startup founders in the country. And we want to learn how to build a unicorn.
1: Hi, I am Anurag Jain, founder of Club. Delighted to be part of uh, the podcast. Thank you for having me over.
0: I did this great tweet the other day which said that if you're a startup founder looking to make an impact, then raise tons of VC money. But if you're a founder looking to create wealth, then bootstrap it. For most founders, this is a dilemma that's hard to solve. Of course, every founder wants to make impact and have scale, but nobody likes to end up with just 5% of their own company. And which is where comes in an innovative startup called Club. That's Club with a K. Club is a fintech startup that offers revenue-based financing. What is revenue-based financing? Essentially, it's a loan or it's debt. The only difference is that you don't pay back a fixed monthly EMI. Rather, Club takes a percentage of your revenue for X number of months which means that Club is truly a partner in your growth. And Anurag Chen, the founder of Club, has had a fascinating journey spanning multiple countries and has a lot of insights to share, starting from how to think big, to how to build an organization, how to scale culture, and how to build a crack team of super achievers. Here's Anurag talking about how his journey began. Tell me about growing up. Like, Where did you grow up? What kind of family did you grow up in? Was there an influence of business in your childhood years? Did you think of entrepreneurship as a kid or was it just to study and get a good job? Like, you know, what, what was that journey like for you?
1: So uh, my journey actually is a bit of all over the India. I'm originally from uh, Madhya Pradesh. That's where uh, my uh, sort of natives are from. Uh, grew up in uh, Bihar. Uh, so this is close to uh, Shamgar district of a village called Garot. We still have land there and my father takes care of it as well. Largely, you know, it's just come through the generations of sorts.
0: How did your father come out of the village? Like, was he the first one to study and get a job and all? Actually, that's the starting
1: point of it all. So for me, what I was going to say is that uh, the starting point was with my father who stepped out, got an engineering degree and then joined uh, Steel Authority, uh, a public sector unit uh, called Sale. Back then, uh, getting a government job was uh, two things. A, it was a lot of stability. But for him, I'd argue that it was uh, getting out of uh, the setting of the village in itself. He did his MBA as well, somewhere in the middle. But he started with that job in steel authority, and he retired with that job in steel authority. So he was a career guy who did it. But uh, interestingly, we got exposed to uh, a city called Bokaro, uh, it's actually called Bokaro Steel City, there is a, a steel plant there, uh, and that was the perfect melting pot. So the first few years of my schooling were in uh, Bokaro, where uh, different people across India had come in, and these were more educated people, these were all engineers and, and sons and daughters of engineers, uh, and so the academic system in, uh, in that small town was uh, cutthroat. And uh, Everyone would uh, want their children to study and to do well in life. And uh, it was quite unlike other towns and cities in that there wasn't any external influence. So while we were in Bihar, now Jharkhand, it was an isolated community in itself that, uh, that was its own microcosm of sorts. So that was the first part of, uh, of life up until sixth standard. Uh, For some personal reasons, uh, we had to shift and to uh, relocate. So we ended up going to Rajasthan. Uh, So I did uh, the next part of my schooling in uh, Jaipur, which was um, another phenomenal experience in itself. Did my 11th and 12th from Kota. Engineering was the option that that I had uh, gotten myself into largely because I was terrible at drawing. And I knew that I could do nothing in arts. And so I um, ended up going to Kota to prep for uh, the IITs. Did not get through uh, the first attempt and uh, went to uh, Delhi. Uh, took another attempt, got through, and got into IIT Delhi. That one year, all I did was uh, cram as much as possible, but also reflect on what all I had not done in my uh, first attempt uh, to be able to undo the mistakes.
0: Right, right. Okay.
1: In IIT, my first math test is when I got a big fat zero. And that's when I realized I am not cut out for this. So while I wanted to be an uh, aerospace engineer, I couldn't, and I got civil engineering as a degree. Even in civil engineering, I was uh, a big fat doll uh, thanks to my first math test. And that's when I figured out, I need to figure out, I need to do something else. I need to channel my energies uh, differently. One of the reasons why I really wanted to get to the IITs, which is unheard of, is because of the extracurriculars and uh, that got validated. So I spent a lot of time in uh, extracurriculars in uh, undergrad, but uh, in my second year, I actually got into a side thing also, which is I uh, started solving a problem. So there was one particular problem that I felt very strongly about. And uh, I started solving that problem. Today, I can call it my first startup idea. Uh, Back then, I had no idea I was working on a startup.
0: What was the problem?
1: The problem was very simple. I mean, I was just trying to create a model in which students from IITs could just coach, not coach from an education standpoint, but just coach from a a, a getting into IIT soft skills perspective for students. And so I was speaking with coaching institutions saying, hey, uh, I have a bunch of friends who want to speak to potential students, uh, why don't we set this up as a program uh, and why don't you pay me for it? So it was a problem and I was trying to find an economic solution there. There was demand, there was supply. That was my first attempt at a marketplace. Uh, It failed miserably. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that uh, the coaching institutions saw this as a threat. They saw this as a threat in that they believed that uh, we could actually start educating the students ourselves and uh, and that would lead to uh, uh, their jobs, uh, I mean, or or their uh, sort of links with the students getting removed. So for us, uh, we kept on trying to speak with uh, some of our teachers as well, saying, hey, this makes sense. But finally realized that this doesn't work. And that was the failure of my first startup idea in uh, itself.
0: Mm-hmm. OK. Oh,
1: so because of that startup idea, I came across the term um, entrepreneurship, uh, as I was just researching up more about it, speaking with some uh, uh, some mentors. And uh, they told me, hey, why don't you check out the term called entrepreneurship? While I was searching for the term entrepreneurship, I came across the term venture capital. And that was my aha moment in my second year uh, of IIT where I said, hang on, this is so cool. As a failed entrepreneur, uh, I can enable other entrepreneurs uh, and I get paid to do that. That sounds like a phenomenal career uh, opportunity in itself. And uh, that was when uh, the whole bug for, uh, I was bitten by the bug of uh, venture capital. And I uh, tried to figure out how to craft my journey into uh, venture capital, applied to a bunch of companies. And I'm speaking 2002, where when there weren't enough uh, uh, companies in India, venture capital funds in India. And so the few that were there, I applied to them. Uh, got the standard response. Uh, You don't have any work experience. You don't have any MBA, so we can't accept you. And I kept on trying for a long period of time just to realize that this is not the time for me to get into venture capital. So after uh, uh, the IIT, I got into uh, an IT consulting firm. It was a very short stint uh, for uh, six months because in the fourth month, I uh, Out of the blue, I got an email in my um, old inbox uh, from one of the people I had applied to about a year, year and a half back. Uh, this person moved out of their uh, venture capital fund and uh, he asked me if I was still interested in joining a company. And so I uh, ended up uh, uh, responding back, ended up interviewing and joining uh, a boutique investment bank as the first uh, employee. Back in 2005, something which was unprecedented, unheard of. My parents were completely shocked, uh, but, uh, but that was a bold, gutsy move in itself, uh, which is which paved, up, paved off uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, learned a lot in that uh, few years in, uh, in that Boutique Investment Bank. Uh, that Boutique Investment Bank was uh, setting up its own venture capital fund, which did not materialize. Uh, and that's when I decided formally to apply to venture capital got through venture capital with a firm called uh, DFG and so, you know, kind of came full circle after the second year of IIT.
0: And you were like an investment analyst, like you would be talking to potential founders who who could be invested in.
1: Absolutely. So I was uh, the only analyst uh, on the team. In fact, it was a very small team at that point in time. It was uh, three investment professionals and a venture partner as well. So four investment professionals full-time, only three based out of Bangalore. I was the analyst responsible for uh, speaking with companies, figuring out the investments, uh, assisting the partner and the principal, and because it's a small team, just about doing everything. So uh, I recall doing about everything, including setting up the office space as well. So it was anything and everything, but it was a phenomenal learning experience uh, in itself.
0: So what made you want to like do an MBA? I guess being an investment analyst is in a way like a better education than doing an MBA, right?
1: Actually, it started off from the investment bank in itself, because by then I was exposed to all sorts of companies, business models, different structures in themselves. What are companies doing? How is innovation being driven in India? At the point, it was still early, young and early. DFJ was just a whole new dimension to it as well. At some given point in time, I was the youngest VC in India, which was uh, not the best thing to speak about. Uh, I would actually never speak about it because uh, it made no sense. So I was sitting in boardrooms and board meetings as an observer, but I realized very quickly that I actually didn't know anything. Uh, And there was so much more to learn, so much more to figure out. Uh, I understood a bit of finance, but... um, but it was all about people. It was all about uh, how groups of people come together to solve problems. Uh, And that was the real thing that uh, got me thinking as well. So towards the end of uh, my DFJ stint, I actually tried to do my second startup idea with my current co-founder. So we were a group of four people, uh, one of who is uh, my current co-founder, and uh, we were trying to solve another problem at that point in time. Uh, simultaneously I was applying for business school largely because, uh, you know, VC fund as an analyst, as you grow up, you have to go for the business school in itself. I was in two minds. I was trying to figure out whether I should or should not go. And, uh, a very smart person told me that years later, uh, in your career, it will matter at that point in time, it did not make sense. And I rebelled a fair bit, but finally ended up applying to a few programs, uh, got through Wharton and, uh, end up joining. So that project, that, uh, second startup idea got disbanded and I went to business school.
0: Must have been like a pretty life-changing experience. No, I mean, you were in a way with the best minds of the world. Uh, so, so, you know, what changed in you post that two year stint? Like, did it change your trajectory, your goals?
1: For me, Watton was transformational in a few ways in that, uh, the first class that we had during preterm was, uh, taken by a professor by the name of Adam Grant. And uh, it was transformational. It was done during preterm. Uh, that is before the course had started off as well. And I realized very quickly that what he was saying linked back with something that I had realized in venture capital, that it's all about people. And... Uh, Adam Grant is a a professor who has spent years in organizational development, organizational effectiveness and motivation theories. And everything that happened during that short course in preterm absolutely validated my idea about what I had seen in uh, venture capital. So for the next two years, I tried to fuse the concepts of venture capital that I had learned about investing and building companies with organizational development. Uh, It's all about how do you get a group of people to work uh, together and to perform together um, in a common direction. That was the big shift, uh, I'd say, that happened for me, uh, apart from the fact that I wanted to be an operator. So just those two years were transformational. I always say this, that uh, I think business school for me was um, a net addition of intangibles as opposed to tangibles i don't think i learned a lot of tangible skill sets in terms of finance or accounting or or marketing but just the intangibles in terms of a different way of thinking i think that was spectacular uh, and watton from that standpoint uh, it it took the it took me out of the well so i was a frog in the well as i used to call it i got out of the well and i thought it was a phenomenal place uh, just the way that i think today i attribute a lot of that to watton because that allowed me to think very, very differently as well. So that was the net uh, uh, outcome of uh, Wharton. Did an internship in the Bay Area, and I thought that was super cool. So uh, I'd never worked in Bay Area. I'd worked for a Bay Area fund, but that was working in the Bay Area. That was a very, very interesting summer in itself, and I wanted to try and get an operational role uh, in the Valley after uh, graduation. So the very next day after graduation, I, uh, after convocation, I packed up my bags, uh, flew out to the West coast, uh, for the next uh, two, three months, I tried my hand to get a, get an operational job. I wouldn't get it. The uh, country was still coming out of recession. I heard the common thing here. You're a VC. You are from India. There are no tangible skill sets that you have. So we don't know how to place you. I didn't want to get into the green card shenanigans. So after uh, trying for two, three months, uh, is when I decided to come back to India. Incidentally, right when I booked my tickets, within two, three days, I finally got a, a job offer. But by then, I'd made up my mind to uh, move back to India.
0: Okay, okay. No regrets about that?
1: None whatsoever, because um, as a student, I'd run out of money. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I knew that that was the right thing to do in terms of uh, moving back. As is the plan was just to spend a couple of years in the U.S. at best and uh, then go back to India to build. But uh, no regrets whatsoever, because much later, years on in my career with Inmobi, I traveled extensively to the U.S. and I spent a lot of time working there, so much so that uh, I think I did enough and more than I wanted to uh, from my uh, post-B school experience. So no regrets whatsoever.
0: So how did you end up at Inmobi?
1: It was actually not in Mobi directly. So after coming back to India, I was searching for operational roles here, uh, but by then I, I had gotten married. And so we, both my wife and I, we were trying to figure out uh, the ideal configuration. So I got an operational role in Delhi and my wife got a role in Bangalore. So I decided to uh, move to Bangalore with another VC fund. So this was a Temasex VC subsidiary called Vertex which was setting up its uh, India arm. So ended up joining as the second person on the ground. Again, the same charter of leading investments uh, in the India market. Did that for about a year and a half, two years, led the investment in First Cry, uh, possibly my only notable investment in my entire <laughs> venture capital career. And I was still trying to marry uh, venture capital with organizational development. So that thread was that Kira had not gone. In fact, right after B-School, I was pounding the pavements on Sandhill Road as well, trying to uh, convince VCs to say, why don't you think about adding on this dimension, uh, working with your portfolio companies? The only fund at that point in time that I still recall resonated with what I said was Andreessen Horowitz. They had a full-blown team that was doing partner management that was uh, working with startups at that point in time in uh, helping them build talent but I didn't really get a lot of uh, uh, sort of support at that time. So that bug was still there. I tried it out at Vertex, didn't really materialize. So I was trying to figure out, hey, what else can I do in organizational development? I was speaking with the uh, head of uh, PeopleOps, head of HR uh, in Mobi, and I was sharing my interests with her around organizational development. And uh, she ended up saying, hey, why don't you do a project with us, for us? So I ended up doing... uh, Uh, an HR intervention for the HR team as a nobody. I mean, I had no idea about the space, but she was kind enough to just you know, give me a project. And uh, that project got me connected to uh, the Inmobi founders. I'd already known them before in my venture capital days. And so I was pitching them a few business ideas as a young brash VC. I was telling them, hey, you should do uh, these things. It would be ideal for the business to grow. And I still recall them turning around saying, uh, Naveen turning around and saying, hey, why don't you come build it for us? Uh, and I was taken aback in that uh, I had always given gyan. I, I, it wasn't thrown back at me saying, hey, do you want to build it yourself? And so over the next few months, uh, Naveen and Amit were kind enough to uh, take a bet on me. and uh, And that's how I ended up joining in Mobi.
0: What was the business you were building?
1: So um, the whole thesis at that point in time, and this is uh, an era when um, Facebook had uh, absolutely mushroomed in the mobile advertising business. So it was just two large giants, Google and Facebook, and everyone else was getting clobbered left, right, and center. So the thesis was that uh, Inmobi, as a company, as a marketplace should partner with large entities uh, that are also trying to disrupt this duopoly. And so the thesis was that we work with OEMs essentially uh, mobile device manufacturers because they have a lot of real estate uh, and data and also to work with telcos who also have a lot of data assets uh, and in some countries they control the mobile devices as well so essentially how do we get access to exclusive real estate and to exclusive data so essentially that was the whole proposition about uh, starting off a vertical that works with OEMs and with telcos
0: this is what led to glance eventually
1: that is absolutely right So we were part of the founding team of uh, Glance. In fact, it was not called Glance back then. Uh, Initially when I joined, there was no term. It was called New Initiatives because we were keeping it under wraps. We then christened it internally. It was led by Amit Gupta, founder of Yulu. We then christened it internally to uh, call Vault, which is again an internal project terminology. Uh, Vault then evolved to OEM and telco solutions. That's what we would call ourselves in the market and then finally it became uh, the, the, the two sides split. So the OEM business then became Glance, uh, which has become a unicorn in itself. So yes, that's how it started off.
0: It was during this stint that uh, you thought of Club, like how did the idea for Club come about? Because this itself is like, you know, you're, you're in a way like a founder, like, you know, part of the founding team building up a new vertical. So what made you want to start Club? club did not start immediately.
1: Just when I was uh, wrapping up my uh, stint at glance is when I was thinking of moving out and doing something else. Conversations led me to uh, uh, move into the, the second entrepreneurial project at uh, in Mobi, which was linked to uh, the telco data project as we used to call it. So essentially working on the telco side, unlocking the massive data assets that uh, the telcos have. And so I got into that second project where I was uh, leading an acquisition in the Midwest, in the US. And so I would, uh, I would travel extensively to the US uh, trying to complete that acquisition, which took a long time in itself. We acquired a full team there. That business ultimately got rebranded as uh, True Factor, which has again gotten rebranded to uh, certain components that we acquired uh, at that point in time. So uh, those two components are doing extremely well. They have become large business units in themselves. And so that was the second entrepreneurial project that I was involved at in Mobi.
0: So you quit with an idea in mind or you quit with just a desire to do something?
1: The quitting part of Inmobi was um, with some idea, but also with the desire to do my own thing. I was fairly clear by then that I had done uh, two entrepreneurial stints at Inmobi and I wanted to do something of my own. That was one definite reason for sure. But it was not absolutely throwing a dart in the dark. There were some ideas, some concepts that we wanted to work on. Uh, they had been fermenting for some period of time. We wanted to build a consumer brand in line with our Ikigai, so we were trying to do something out of the regular humdrum of uh, corporate life and wanted to build a consumer brand. That is the genesis of Club in itself. But as we did more research, as we spoke with more entrepreneurs, more founders about the space, about the sector, we always heard a recurring problem of capital or the lack of capital. And uh, it was good to start off the consumer brand, but uh, if you wanted to scale the consumer brand, then there was a lack of capital. And every single founder entrepreneur always spoke about that no matter what. And so we started working on the consumer brand.
0: It was supposed to be like a D2C play.
1: It was more meant to be a slightly different thing. D2C as a buzzword was not uh, prevalent then, uh, but we were trying to build uh, a speakeasy bar which was going to be more of a networking place uh, as well and which was going to spawn off its own sub-brands as well including some d2c brands so it was a com- it was a consumer brand with lots of things under the hood but the whole thesis was that uh, there's so much more to be done with just a group of people coming together it was predicated on the fact that we would be able to scale up but as we started uh, researching going back to that point Capital was a much bigger problem that that we heard of, and we were both finance people. And so we would always scratch our heads going like, why is that good founders, good products, good customer affinity, good financials are not getting rewarded by the capital markets? And around the same period of time, we randomly came across the term revenue-based financing in the US. This was for SaaS businesses. And there were companies that were doing it for SaaS. And and we sort of started speaking, saying, hey, why don't we do this for consumer businesses in uh, India? We do get access to alternative data sets. A lot of digitization has happened. Because of our own uh, consumer brand, there were a lot of individuals who wanted to back uh, that brand. And we said, why don't we source capital from different pools of capital in itself, sort of make this a more hybrid way of uh, raising capital? And apply that through revenue based financing, where people get returns as a revenue share. So initially, we were focused on the food sector. And uh, that's how Club, in its current form, shape, or manner, got uh, started out, which was a revenue based financing company for the food sector. Uh, surge happened to us in that uh, we applied, we were the last company, the 20th company of the second batch, Surge 2 cohort. We got through the Surge program. And uh, literally on the first day, we were challenged to think big. And if anything, Ishita and I can think big. That's not our problem at all. Uh, and we said, hey, we, we, we are going to take a decision uh, which we knew was going to happen uh, three quarters out. Are we a fintech company or are we a food first company? I mean, are we going to anchor on the sector or are we going to anchor on the product? And we knew that decision will happen three quarters out. Just on the first day of Surge itself, when we were forced to think big, we said, let's take that decision today. And so that very day, we took a decision that we will be fintech first and we will be sector agnostic. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show.
0: So how does revenue based financing work? How do you get paid back? I mean, I understand giving the money like that that would be like easy. But how do you get paid back?
1: The best way to think about revenue-based financing is that we give capital to companies, but take back the returns as a revenue share. So there is no equity dilution, there are no warrants, there are no fixed EMIs uh, like that of debt, but every month, whatever the company makes, a percentage of that, a pre-agreed percentage of that is what goes back as returns. So the advantage is during good months, the returns are accelerated, but during months with low revenue, when there is seasonality when there are covid induced revenue shocks the returns are also lower so it's a skin in the game financing product
0: do you calculate that this is for x number of months or this is till a certain rupee value has been paid back or is it for perpetuity like uh, how is the deal structured like
1: so at least in the us uh, how revenue based financing started out were these were more perpetuity models or uh, longer term relationships um, india tends to be a very different market we actually had the, had the biggest blessing in disguise in that uh, we did not know of uh, a company called Clearco now, Clearbank back then, uh, which is the 800 pound gorilla in the space. And so we were not encumbered by trying to replicate a business model in India. We were trying to build something very first principles. So we took some design choices, which were very first principles, including the fact that we do not do uh, uh, products which are uh, perpetuity in nature. We believe that uh, every company has a certain risk associated with it. And we are in the business of assessing that risk and pricing that risk. One of the risk elements is what we call tenor risk. Now, should we take a three month tenor risk on a company or an 18 month uh, tenor risk, and everything in the middle is the dynamic calculation that we do for each company. And so we are investors. Or rather, we've been investors who are not trying to pigeonhole ourselves into certain slots. We are not trying to say no to a company. Uh, We're not trying to pick the market winner. We are trying to say yes to each company because we are truly trying to assess its risk and match it effectively on the other side.
0: The risk gets translated into the tenure. Like if it is high risk, then you ask for an 18-month Uh, revenue share uh, or if it's low risk then you ask for let's say six months revenue share is that how it works
1: not as simple as that a the converse holds true in that if it's a high risk company then the tenor is shorter because we want to see how the company performs over a shorter period of time take lesser exposures on it and if the company does well then we do another round of investment investment with them and we keep on doing this over a period of time And if the risk is lower, then we have the visibility to give a longer tenor to the company in itself.
0: Give me like a hypothetical example with numbers just to make it clear now.
1: If say, for example, it is a a young brand as we call it, low in revenue, uh, what we would call an Instagram brand, something very, very young, low revenues, not a lot of uh, operational vintage, then that would be a high risk company. This is where we would do uh, 10 hours from three to six months. We want to see how the company performs. The quantum of capital will be on the smaller side, under 25 lakhs, uh, just to see whether the company is able to repay it. Again, the quantum of capital varies by company, uh, so it's not a blanket statement at all. Just to give some ballpark uh, guidance, if it's a company doing 10 lakhs MRR, MRR standing for Monthly Revenue Run Rate, then typically we can take an exposure uh, of about 10 lakhs on the company itself now this number these numbers again vary by the tenor by the revenue share and ultimately the yield that we expect so if we were to give uh, 10 lakhs to the company and we expect uh, a yield say for example of five percent uh, then we expect 10 lakhs into 1.05 percent to come over that six month uh, time period basis a certain revenue share on the business in itself. So these things tend to be a lot more dynamic in nature. And uh, that is the calculation that we're doing.
0: Uh, I'm going to kind of recap. So you would decide what is the rate of return you want on it. So like say on 10 lakhs loan, you want a 5% rate of return. So that's like 10 lakhs, 50,000 and then decide on a 10 year and then that divided by the 10 year is what would then become the revenue uh, clawback or the the revenue share that uh, would get entered into assuming that the same monthly run rate continues, something like that.
1: Yes, just two or three things to add there. Rate of return means something very specific. So I'm going to call it yield. That 5% is actually called yield. Uh, the rate of return is actually imputed backwards. And uh, one also has to think through a lot of other use cases and scenarios as well, in that you apply too high higher revenue share on a company and the ability to uh, pay comes down and you apply too low lower revenue share and the returns don't come back as well, right? You have to incorporate seasonality in some of these uh, models as well. You have to incorporate cyclicality of businesses uh, as well. Uh, it's, it's a tad more complex, but you're absolutely, uh, you understood it correctly.
0: So do you uh, only lend to digital businesses because you have data there, like a business, which is not like selling online, the, the amount of data you would have about them would be less, right?
1: Well, it depends. Uh, digital in itself is a very broad terminology. Uh, online is just a portion of digital in itself. There are a lot of businesses that sell offline that have digital data footprints. For example. Uh, we work with a lot of uh, offline brands uh, that are in the food space. Uh, So we work with cafes, cloud kitchens, companies, D2C brands that have stores uh, and that are doing store expansions. Uh, A lot of these businesses one would call brick and mortar, traditionally offline. But actually, if you start assessing the businesses, everything is digital. Uh, Their billing systems are digital. Uh, Majority of the revenue streams are digital in nature. Their inventory systems, their marketing systems are digital in nature. So there are a lot more data sets that you can uh, look at and assess. So we don't believe in the whole concept of uh, online and offline. Uh, In fact, what we see in India, and I'd argue across Asia, is that businesses become omni-channel very quickly. First of all, multi-channel and then omni-channel very, very quickly. So if it's an online business, it will start selling on all sorts of online channels very quickly, and then will go into offline. If it's an offline business, it will start selling into multiple offline channels, GT, MT, uh, and then get into uh, uh, regular online channels as well.
0: How does uh, your share of revenue flow to you? Is it like a integration with the billing system, and there is like a direct, or is it like a monthly reconciliation that you, how much revenue was generated this month, and then you send them a bill or something, or like how does that happen?
1: It's a combination of both. Uh, This is also part of the proprietary stack that I will speak about the least. I'd argue that giving money is easy, taking it back is much, much harder. And that is where a lot of innovation also goes in to be able to collect this, uh, uh, to be able to repay, uh, for the brands to be able to repay the money, but in an easy, simple, seamless manner. And to be rewarded for uh, good behavior in itself. So that's where a fair bit of uh, work also goes in, which is uh, all proprietary tech that we've built.
0: How do you reward for good behavior? Like you give a better uh, rate of interest or?
1: Larger quantum of capital, uh, better cost of capital. uh, And so we are a scalable provider of capital in that companies that uh, continue to work with us have raised six, seven, eight rounds of financing through us so they just keep on raising more and more round of capital as they repay and the terms just keep getting better as well
0: and uh, this is for uh, largely product based companies or even services companies also
1: a- anywhere where there is a recurrence of revenue including services is very much a scope and charter of what we do so uh, it's not just product companies uh, or consumer product companies
0: Like, say, an ad agency?
1: Uh, An ad agency, if it has recurring revenue, would become part of the scope. Uh, Typically, ad agencies don't have revenue recurrence per se. These are not SaaS businesses. These are more one-time in nature. uh, And hence, a little hard to uh, model out and to predict.
0: Do you fund this from your own balance sheet or like, you know, the money that you're giving them? Where does that come from?
1: It's a combination. That's where we are the world's only hybrid marketplace. We tap into uh, different pools of capital through regulatory compliance structures. It is not done from our balance sheet uh, only. In fact, uh, up until our last round, we actually had very minimalistic balance sheet exposure. We don't believe in raising equity money and then deploying it in other companies. It's just, it doesn't make sense. So uh, we don't do that. Uh, We have different pools of capital that we source
0: from. what are these different pools yes yeah,
1: so these different pools include uh, nbfc's uh, domestic institutional investors it includes banks it includes uh, hnis it includes uh, international investors so a combination of all of these is what we utilize we pair the right set of companies across the risk return spectrum with an appropriate pool of capital and um, that in itself is um, a fair bit of intelligence that we've built over the last few quarters.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So what is the landscape of uh, revenue-based financing in India? I know that there are a lot of companies which work with Amazon marketplace sellers. Uh, I think that is like one category in this market, right? Like people who do bill discounting, like once you sell on Amazon, then they'll give you 95% of that, what Amazon is going to pay you. Uh, w- what else is there like in this space?
1: Yeah, so India is a fairly credit uh, underpenetrated market in itself. I'd argue, right from the traditional structures, which includes traditional debt and equity, which means uh, bank debt and uh, equity in the form of venture capital and private equity. Those are the more traditional forms. Uh, we now have a fair bit of uh, SME financing in the form of working capital financing, which is what you're referring to. Uh, Bill discounting or invoice discounting factoring, which has started off as well uh, in the market has picked up a fair bit of steam. And then revenue-based financing in itself, which tends to take uh, slightly more midterm exposures. Invoice discounting is just uh, discounting that particular invoice over 30, 45 days in itself. So it's a very short-term product in itself. It does not allow... uh, a brand and a company to invest in uh, inventory or marketing or growth in itself. And so there is still a need for more medium term capital. That is where revenue based financing uh, comes in.
0: Okay. You know, did uh, COVID put stress on companies and make them more uh, likely to default or, you know, or was it the other way around that you discovered those companies which benefited from COVID or like, you know, what has been the impact of COVID on businesses?
1: So COVID has been, uh, I mean, of course, for the ones that uh, there is, of course, a huge survivorship bias uh, to this, but the ones who have survived uh, would all argue that there has been uh, massive tailwinds because of uh, COVID in itself. Just the adoption, the digital adoption, what would have taken three to four years, got compressed in a matter of three to four quarters. And that positive impact is what a lot of businesses have seen. Uh, Of course, COVID was a time where the two waves were uh, periods of extreme flux. That's when a lot of businesses discovered the flexibility of revenue-based financing as well, in that uh, this is where a product like this makes complete sense. Uh, So we actually saw a lot of uh, benefits associated with it. A few businesses did have downturns uh, during the weeks of lockdown, but as soon as markets opened up, they jumped back. And so much so that we had to build uh, optionality in our products such that companies that are absolutely mushrooming off don't end up overpaying as well. And so we have seen net-net after accounting for survivorship bias, a lot of businesses do well, a lot of shift to digital across traditional businesses as well. And that is where financing in itself has become more digital in nature, uh, which is uh, what we are enjoying completely.
0: So what is your roadmap towards becoming a unicorn? How do you see that happening? Is it uh, continue to get more customers for the same product or also do uh, like, you know, expand into allied products or, you know, what's the roadmap?
1: So first thing first, we don't think of uh, that as uh, the target in any form, shape or manner in terms of becoming a unicorn. Startup valuation is a math of demand, demand and supply at the end of the day. And, uh, there is a, an over-indexation on that, and there is um, it leads to certain very uh, weird things happening in startups that we are going to see. We are already seeing and we are going to see over the next few quarters as well. We are truly here because we are trying to solve a problem. We are on a mission to enable growth for love brands, as simple as that, as complex as that. We believe that there is a much larger purpose uh, that we are executing towards founders of companies genuinely are not able to get capital to build their businesses and we think that's such a large problem for us to solve we are grateful every single day that we get to work with phenomenal founders across the spectrum of maturity of companies it's a privilege that we take very very seriously at uh, club we handle people's money it is a, a position of extreme responsibility If you're able to build what we are building and deliver more throughput, deliver more value, we know that intrinsically value of the marketplace also increases. And if the value of the marketplace increases, then it will be rewarded by uh, investors who would see more potential to it as well.
0: What is stopping you from, like, say, growing 10x each month? Is it that there are not enough quality founders around or uh, or that it takes time to assess the risk of each founder? You know, what are like those kind of challenges which you are solving on a day-to-day basis?
1: Actually, I'm going to take a step back and respond to that question. In that two-sided marketplaces are built gradually where you are making sure that supply and demand are built in tandem. Uh, you over-index on one side and the marketplace becomes lopsided and it fails. And markets of Asia, thereby India, tend to operate slightly differently. These are not markets of the US where you can absolutely just over-index on one side and the other side will will be naturally attracted to it. In India, you have to build it gradually on both sides. So while we are seeing phenomenal month-on-month growth rates, a 10x growth rate is not simply driven by adding more supply. It is also not, uh, driven by adding more demand. It is in careful matching of both sides of the marketplace. And if we continue to do that, there will be step jumps in the business. So, uh, every three months, every two to three months, we have a step jump in the business where we move the orbit of the business in itself. And so it will be step jump up to a certain point in time. After that, it starts becoming exponential when, both sides get attracted to the marketplace. So essentially network effects start taking into shape. We are not there yet. We see early signs of network effects, but, uh, these are early signs of network
0: effects. You had this, uh, very strong desire to learn organization building, organization development, and you know, the, the thesis around people being the key to a business. So how are you implementing those desires at club? You know, what is the way that you're building up club as an organization?
1: Let me start off by saying that it's not a singular thing that you do that uh, ultimately leads to an organization getting built and for it to hum in a particular, to operate at a at a particular frequency in itself. The second uh, axiom there is that startups evolve very rapidly. So anything that you've done six months back, organizationally has to be torn down and redone uh, at least in the initial few phases, up until a certain maturity comes in in by itself. With those two axioms in place, uh, we've actually started out uh, with a very different mindset altogether about building the cultural fabric of uh, club. Most companies would have, and we looked at enough and more inspiration, we looked at enough and more companies that had uh, multiple long lists of things that uh, they are aiming for in terms of uh, cultural values. When we started thinking about it, we realized that that's not the way that our brains operate or what we are trying to build in a company. So we have what is called a four-tiered cultural tenets. We have four-tiered cultural tenets. The first tier, which is the foundational block for us, is uh, what are called our virtues. Virtues are things that we cannot teach, that we cannot train, we cannot impart. You either have it or you don't. If you have it, uh, you will find club to be a very easy place. And we try and tell a lot of candidates, if you don't identify with these virtues, stay away from club, uh, because these will get over-indexed a lot. On the bedrock of virtues comes our next philosophy, our next tier, which is what we call club's wow, club's way of working. These are five simple tenets that we run like a uh, drill sergeant into our team members. These are things that you will learn at club if you're working at club.
0: Can you detail it out? Like what are those virtues or what are those vows?
1: So let's start with the virtues. So the five virtues that we speak about are uh, fire in the belly, which is absolute crazy hunger to, uh, to just to learn, to grow, to be better the second one is hard work and while a lot of people speak about hard work our hard work is our, our understanding of hard work is is that your average of hard work should be higher than the max of most people so you're a hard worker of a new order altogether uh, the third one is trustworthiness uh, high integrity is very important to us the next one is intellectual curiosity It's always just learning more things. It's uh, just having a growth mindset about all sorts of things in life. And the last one is humility. Incredible intellectual humility about uh, what you know, but more importantly, what you don't know. So these are five virtues that we sort of uh, ask pretty much all people who are interviewing at club to identify with. And if they don't, we recommend them to steer clear. Moving on to the next one, which is essentially our way of working. The five of them are uh, what we call high A to D. A to D stands for attention to detail. It it is so important to have very, very high A to D because we deal with people's money. Uh, Even five pesa here or there doesn't work for us. And so zero defect work consistently is something that we um, ram into our team members as well. Structured thinking is the next one essentially the ability to manage multiple threads, parallel and sequential in nature, uh, and be able to know what the priority is at this particular point in time, while making sure that others don't drop in themselves. So that's another big thing. The third one is clear communication, uh, both internally and externally. We could do a lot better externally, but uh, just in terms of internal communication, uh, we tend to uh, focus a lot in making sure that uh, our input and output of receipt of information is uh, very, very clear in itself. The next one is extreme ownership. So the ability to uh, own things, get them done, and then to help other team members uh, as a team in itself. It's sort of taken off from uh, the seals in the US in itself. The last of our uh, tenet there is positivity spreader. So essentially, startups are tough in nature. So we try and uh, keep inculcating that you have to look at the brighter side of things. And so positivity spreader is uh, the fourth uh, way of working tenet for us. So that's the second layer on which things are built, which leads us on to the third layer, which is actually the cultural values. Culture is what is the next uh, layer for us. Now, interestingly, when we thought about culture very deeply, we realized that there is nothing called ideal. Culture is actually finding balance. And that balance tends to shift and it tends to vary. So it's about finding that right balance at that point in time, which is ideal for the situation in itself. So the five cultural values for us, which is sort of uh, a balance in the middle. The first one is uh, think big and execute small. So we really believe that uh, thinking big is important, but the execution is minute in nature. It has to be uh, piecemeal in nature. It is step-by-step step in nature. Uh, when they say Rome was not built in one day, they are right, but then you need to have that vision that a Rome is going to be built uh, and much more if you have to do it as well. The second is delivering high velocity output and high quality output. A lot of times, uh, even in India, we are trained that you know, move fast, break things. We don't believe in that at all. You have to move fast. It's not just movement. You have to deliver velocity, which is not just speed. It's about the distance traversed, but also with high quality in itself. Uh, the third one is be objective and, uh, retain emotionality. Startups are so much about taking objective decisions yet. You need to be emotional. You know, you need to have a drive, a hunger, a passion, a vision, and that's all emotional. So, you know, you have to find that balance between the two in itself. Uh, the fourth one is always be building and always be selling. So essentially, you keep on building, yet you have to sell that in the market as well. And It's so again, finding the balance between the two. The last is raise the bar for yourself and for others. So it's not just about an individual uh, contribution in itself. It's also about expecting and demanding more from other team members. These are the three layers. The last one, the simplest one is the mission, which sits on the apex, our mission is to enable growth for love brands. That sits at the top of the pyramid. So that's our cultural uh, tenets. I know I took a long time to speak about it.
0: No, no, no. I think it's worth the time spent. What is your headcount today?
1: We're 40 people.
0: Isn't this overkill for a 40 people startup? It's hard for someone to even remember? Or is it something which is more of your personal, like a guide of, for the founders to keep in mind or-
1: If you were to ask most companies about culture and ask team members, do you remember culture? I would bet my money that they don't. Not all of the things, not all of the times. You don't lay down cultural tenets for remembering them. You lay down cultural tenets because when everything else is forgotten, these can be remembered. And that's the single purpose why culture exists and it needs to be articulated. I'd argue, What we are doing is so complex that it can easily be a 150% team. We do what we do with 40 people because of our cultural tenets, because we are self-selecting a very elite set of team members. We are not trying to be the Marines. We are trying to be the SEALs. We are that elite commando unit. The more elite you get. The more clear you need to be on why you are doing what you are doing. Uh, And even if you don't remember all of the things, uh, can you just remember that there are four things that matter? Even if you can remember that, it doesn't matter. The rest will come naturally because virtues, no one needs to remember. You're already screened for it. Way of working, no one needs to remember it. We will I will train you. We will ram this into you uh, if you're a team member at club. Cultural tenets, you remember, you don't remember, doesn't matter at all. The only single thing that you need to remember is the mission. That's all we ask. The rest, it doesn't really matter
0: right right yeah this is the, yeah this is actually thinking way executing small amazing you already thought about what uh, like a large organization should have and executed it today like in anticipation of that amazing so uh, how does your uh, hiring work like how do you build this team of seals
1: at least our uh, interviewing process is uh, going through iterations this is where uh, Every six months, we have to scratch down our template and to restart it uh, grounds up. Uh, Today, we get a fair bit of inbound as well. We are reaching out, outbound, a fair bit of, uh, uh, we work with a fair bit of agencies as well at this point in time. But there are multiple screening layers. These screening layers are both technical and non-technical. The advantage of a small team is that you start understanding the fabric of how the team operates. These are unspoken things. These are things that we are testing out. Again, the virtues and power, right? So right during technical and non-technical screening, a lot of people just keep getting screened out. Our rejection rates are incredibly high. And we've looked at some of that data and uh, it's mind boggling at some level, but that's what we need to do, right? If we have to do what we do. After that, it starts advancing into more uh, Detailed technical rounds where we ask for case studies. And then uh, you end up speaking with one of the co founders who's taking not just a technical round, but also a non technical cultural fitment. Uh, we also have bar raisers internally. So bar raisers are always pushing the boundaries of how the team is uh, going to be and going to be designed. So it's a combination of some of the best practices that we found. And we are again in the process of uh, uh, redoing and rehashing it as we speak.
0: See, I can understand as a founder, you would be able to judge virtues like say fire in the belly and hard work and you know uh, those five virtues that you spoke about. But uh, those are fairly subjective um, to judge at scale. Like if you were at a stage where you were hiring 50 people a month, how would you judge that? Like those virtues?
1: I know this is a podcast, but I've been smiling. And the reason I'm smiling is because uh, I think some of my team members judge virtues far better than even I do. And I'm incredibly proud to say that, right? I mean, if they are able to do this, that means we've done something right. Yes, they become much harder if you're trying to add uh, uh, 50, 100 people every month. We're very clear we are not trying to add 50, 100 people every month. That's an organizational choice that we took a long time back. Our choice has always been as in, as founders is that less is more. If we have less high quality people, we know that as a unit, we'll be able to do a lot more. It's again, the same SEALs concept. You will not see a, a platoon of uh, SEALs going after a problem. You have very small units that actually attack problems and everyone knows what they're doing in that particular unit. Our belief is that uh, in this mad rush for hyper growth, we start throwing people at the problem. And yes, there is a time and place for throwing people at the problem, but then you have these uh, boomerang effects where where you add a lot of people then you're downsizing and then you're adding again and you're downsizing we took a conscious call we will never do that we will be high bar uh tough to get into tough to work at uh for sure but if you enjoy this then you will hopefully learn something as you move on in your professional career in itself so we are not aiming to do uh, 5200 editions every month and so this works
0: does your uh, interview process have like a form in which people rate on virtues or is it like more uh, unspoken? and?
1: No. Uh, so at the end of it, uh, uh, the interviewers actually end up uh, rating the professional as well along cultural dimensions. The cultural round is specifically uh, designed for it. A lot of team members are assessing on the technical side, but the cultural side absolutely goes down into virtues as well. We also try and do something else it's much simpler for us to repel people than to attract people. It's counterintuitive, but we are putting ourselves out there such that people don't want to apply at club, that they know that this is a tough place. We still, we still work in progress. I definitely don't want to claim that we've been able to do it. But uh, we are trying to communicate as much as is possible that if you think it doesn't work, chances are it won't. We are just trying to catch the best signals between the noise not that it's meant offensively it's not everyone fits into different kinds of organizations there are some organizations that won't fit for you and we are trying to call out very clearly about what we are as an organization such that if you don't think it makes sense don't join us it's okay on both sides
0: as in you've created friction in the application or the selection process so that there is like a self-selection where people are opting out on their own
1: it's not as much friction it's uh, more about communication we are trying hard to communicate more effectively and i'd still argue we can do a far better job of it Uh, but we want to communicate about what fits but more importantly what doesn't fit at club and if we can go out there telling people more about what doesn't fit we are fairly certain that the fitments will happen If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in that is for a complete list of all our shows.